It's March 2009 in the city of Shawnee, Oklahoma. The first pale pink petals are blooming on the eastern redbud trees that line the road running past the hospital. A surefire sign that spring is in full swing. Dorothy Anderson stares out at them, wondering if her husband, Michael, will live to see summer. Two strokes in quick succession have stripped away most of the man she has been married to for over 30 years. She turns to look at him now. Michael is barely able to speak, let alone get out of bed. The nurses on the ward are angels when it comes to his care, but most can't decipher his slurred speech. Dorothy seems to be the only one who could make sense of what he's saying. He beckons her over with a twitch of his hand, and she resumes her vigil in the chair by his bedside. He seems to have shrunk since his first stroke, as if his body is folding in on itself. He tries to talk, but the effort it takes him to speak makes him tremble with the exertion. She wonders if he's in pain, whether she should call a nurse. Dorothy leans in close, whispering to him softly to take his time. He tries again. This time, she's able to pick out most of his words, frowning as she strings them together. What she hears is not what she expected. She leans back, taking his hand in hers, stroking it as she asks him if he's sure this is what he wants. She thinks it's a big mistake. He manages the slightest of nods, and Dorothy breathes out, long and slow. She feels a peculiar mix of relief laced with fear. For three decades now, she has kept a secret. Their secret. One that only the two of them know. At Michael's request, she leaves him where he lies and makes her way along the corridor to the payphone. The police officer who answers sounds bored, but what she has to say soon snaps him out of it. An hour later, she's back in her husband's room and there's a knock on the door. Two officers enter, introduce themselves and pull up chairs. Dorothy takes Michael's hand again, giving it a gentle squeeze. When Michael Anderson starts to speak, they have difficulty following and have to ask Dorothy repeatedly to fill in the parts they don't understand. What follows is one of the most unexpected stories they've ever heard. They know from Dorothy's phone call that her husband wants to confess a crime, but they're not prepared for what follows. He stuns them with a series of revelations. For starters, his name isn't even Michael Anderson. It's James Brewer and he wants to confess to a murder. He tells them about a neighbor who died way back in April 1977, when he lived in Hohenwald, Tennessee. How he and Dorothy have been on the run ever since, and how he needs to cleanse his soul before he dies. The latest stroke has wrought untold damage on his body and mind. This, coupled with the fact his wife is acting as a translator, leaves them uncertain. They take a statement and leave to look into it immediately. But how much did he have to do with the other man's death? And even if he had a hand in it, will there be time to bring charges before he dies? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder 
fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups. This show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of James Brewer, of the words he spoke as he lay dying, about a crime of passion that robbed two children of their father. It's the story of a husband and wife on the run from the law for decades. Fugitives forced to reinvent themselves to survive. A small town stunned by revelations of a murderer living amongst them. And a last ditch attempt to clear a conscience that backfired spectacularly. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It's April 27, 1977. Hohenwald, Tennessee is your typical snapshot of small-town American life. Located 80 miles south of Nashville, a little over 3,000 souls call it home. For most of them, it's just another Wednesday. Spring break has come and gone, and most people are going about their daily routines. Most, but not everyone. James Brewer feels like a ticking time bomb. In a small town like Hohenwald, gossip has a way of getting around. It's hard to keep secrets when everyone knows your business, and he has heard rumors from several sources now that have lodged deep inside his mind. It's alleged that his neighbor, Jimmy Carroll, is sleeping with his wife, Dottie. James has confronted her, but of course she denies it. He needs to square up to Carroll, look him in the eye when he asks him the question he's pretty sure he already knows the answer to. He has knocked on Carol's door a few times, but it's as if his neighbor is avoiding him. Could it be signs of a guilty conscience? Their daughter, Kelly, is in daycare, and James has the day off work, so he and Dottie decide to go to the grocery store. He glances across at the house next door as he pulls out of the driveway, but there's no sign of life. James's mind is his own worst enemy, conjuring up images of Dottie and Carol together. With every passing minute, he winds himself up tighter and tighter. If Dottie picks up on the change in atmosphere, she doesn't let on. They've just pulled into a gas station to fill up the tank when he sees Carol walking out of the store. Carol looks up and the two men lock eyes. His neighbor flashes a nervous smile, as if he knows James has been looking for him. Finally, he can confront Carol. James is all set to chase after him if he flees, but instead... Carol starts walking toward him. Dottie looks up, sees what's about to happen, and begs her husband not to make a scene. Carol is stopped halfway by a friend of his that James recognizes. He hears the man tell Carol to leave it be, but Carol ignores the advice. By the time he gets to within six feet of the car, James has climbed out. Carol holds out both arms, palms up in a gesture meant to placate, but 
just being this close is too much for James. He has played this moment out in his mind a hundred times, what he'll say to Carol, the names he'll call him. But now that Carol is standing right in front of him, the rage that's been simmering inside him for days boils over. James doesn't speak as he reaches into his jacket, pulling out a handgun. Carol's eyes widen as he finds himself staring down the barrel. Before he can say a word, two loud cracks ring out. Carol staggers backwards, a dark red stain spreading across his gut and another by his left shoulder. James makes no move to shoot again. He lets his arm drop to his side as Carol lurches back towards the door to the gas station. He manages to open it, but once inside, he collapses to the ground. Blood pools out from the wound in his belly, spreading across the floor tiles. James makes no move to follow him and finish him off. Instead, he climbs back into his car next to an ashen-faced Dottie and drives away as if nothing happened. The young man who works at the gas station calls 911, but it's too late for Carol. By the time police and paramedics arrive, he's already bled out. It's not a hard case to crack for detectives. The upside of living in a small town is that everyone knows each other. Several witnesses saw everything and are able to name the shooter as James Brewer. Police arrest James that same afternoon. It could be one of the easiest and quickest convictions they've ever had. When you add the discovery of the murder weapon to the eyewitnesses, as well as the cliched motive of a jealous husband, the future looks bleak for James Brewer. Dottie Brewer is also charged with being an accomplice, but the grand jury fails to indict her. At his bail hearing, nobody is more surprised than James himself when his attorney, Jerry Colley, scores an early victory. Colley stresses James's ties to the local community, to his church, and that he has no previous criminal record. He tells the judge that James poses no real flight risk, and despite the charge being first-degree murder, the judge agrees. Bail is initially set at $50,000. There's no way James can afford this, and he looks set to spend the time between his arraignment and trial in custody but his attorney manages to argue it down to 10,000. And though it's a strain, James makes bail and is released pending trial that same day. Carol's family are furious that Jimmy's killer is allowed to walk around like a free man until his date in court. From the number of witnesses police have, it seems like an open and shut case. James, however, has no desire to sit around and wait to be convicted. The exact date he skips town is unclear, not long before the trial, James and his wife pack up as much of their lives as they can fit in their car and bundle their daughter in the back seat. Accounts of who discovered their disappearance at the time are vague. Suffice to say, when police go around to their house, all they find is uncollected mail in the mailbox and empty wardrobes. With no defendant, the trial is put on hold while police scour the state. They questioned the Brewer's friends, family, and work colleagues, but wherever they went, it doesn't seem like they trusted anyone with his destination. Authorities turn up precisely zero leads and begin to suspect that the Brewers have crossed state lines. As it turns out, 
James doesn't run that far. He and Dottie head to Nashville, just 80 miles away. It's got a population of more than half a million, over 150 times that of Hohenwald, so it's a much easier place to lay low. They rent a place by the month, paying cash, and do their best to not draw attention to themselves. What started as a panicked race out of town starts to solidify into a longer-term plan. Life on the run doesn't appeal to James. He doesn't want that for his wife or daughter. They need to find a new home, somewhere they can put down roots. Nashville has been a step in that direction, but if he's to stay ahead of the law, he doesn't just need a new town. He needs a new life. In 1970s America, reinventing yourself is much easier than it'll later become in the digital age. The specifics of how he goes about it and who helps him are unclear. What we do know is that before the family leaves Nashville, James Brewer ceases to exist. He changes his name to Michael Anderson, even securing a new social security number. His wife adopts the new surname, but still goes by Dottie. But as useful as Nashville has been to get some breathing space, James has never intended it to be their final destination. After the press interest in the case dies down, James packs up his family and their meager possessions once again and hits the road. James knows he needs to put as much distance between himself and his hometown as possible. He's Tennessee born and bred, but he values freedom more than his ties to the state. The fugitives hit the interstate and head west until they reach Texas. It's the second largest state by size and by population. Combine this with a gap of almost 700 miles between here and Nashville, and James starts to breathe a little easier. The family doesn't stay in one place too long. They move around the Lone Star State, living out of motels. Anyone might think they're just a family on vacation, rather than on the run from a murder charge. It's not a long-term plan though, and James knows they can't live the rest of their lives on the move. Aside from his moment of madness, there's nothing to suggest he ever committed even the most minor of crimes. For one thing, he needs to get his daughter Kelly settled into a school somewhere. To do that, they need to stop running. But where to choose? He has no idea how wide police back in Hohenwald have cast the net, but he needs to make a decision soon. Instead of picking a town in the vast state of Texas, the Brewers opt to go north, heading up I-35 and crossing state lines into Oklahoma. The obvious choice would be the state capital of Oklahoma City, but James instead picks the smaller town of Shawnee, 40 miles to the east. It's here that he'll try and build a new life for his family. Shawnee is a typical slice of small-town America, known nowadays as the birthplace of Brad Pitt. Established soon after the Civil War, it's a happy medium between the larger cities that the Brewers have hidden in and the cozy small-town feel that they had in Hohenwald. With a clean slate and the ability to write their own backstory, the family rent a house in an old neighborhood on the south side of Shawnee. It's the first in a number of steps to putting down roots in their new town. Next, James must figure out how to provide for his family. The limited savings they have been able to bring on the road are running out fast. But James is a jack of all trades. 
and lands a job at Central Plastics as a machinist. There are a lot of night shifts involved, but he's a hard worker and keeps to himself. Dottie joins the congregation at the Good Shepherd Chapel, a church two blocks from their house. Over the years that follow, she becomes an active member and starts by volunteering for a summer lunch program for disadvantaged kids. This seems to give her a sense of purpose, and Dottie asks local reverend, Lawrence Guest, what else she can do to help. At his suggestion, she starts to lead a weekly Bible studies group at the church. She develops a real flair for it and starts a second class each week, teaching from home. The simple, straightforward life earns the Brewers, now going by their new name of Anderson, a reputation as honest, hardworking people. Nobody ever thinks to question their past too deeply, and they become part of the community. The fugitives blend into Shawnee as if they'd been born there. This peaceful, law-abiding existence continues for the better part of three decades. Kelly goes off to a local university, and soon after, she falls in love with a soldier. They marry, and it's not long after this that the Brewers become grandparents. But in 2006, their quiet life is rocked for the first time since coming to Shawnee. James, now 56, suffers a mild stroke. It's not life-threatening, but on his doctor's advice, he decides to give up his job at Central Plastics. While Dottie has her work with the church to keep her busy, James is forced to sit at home as he regains his strength. He hasn't had much of a life outside of work and family, so he decides to take up whittling wood as a hobby. Neighbors often see him sitting in the garage, door open for fresh air, head bent over his latest project. The rest and relaxation initially seems to do the trick. James's health is far from perfect, but the next two years are pretty stable. That all changes in March 2009, when, aged 58, he suffers a second stroke. This one far more serious than the first, and he's hospitalized. It's severe enough that James is convinced his time is up. He has lived a quiet life for over 30 years. A good life, maybe in part, trying to atone for his sins. One thing's for sure, as he feels the end fast approaching, he doesn't want to slip away without clearing his conscience. Jimmy Carroll's murder has never been far from his mind all these years, but James has never spoken of it, other than to Dottie. He's not that man anymore. The man he has become since, however, feels the urge to confess. This is the moment in which he tells Dottie he wants to come clean. She tries to talk him out of it at first, but he's insistent. He doesn't just want to do this, he needs to. Two detectives arrive and perch on the chairs at James Brewer's bedside, ready to take his statement. But the stroke has affected his speech, making it difficult for them to understand. They have to rely on Dottie to translate her husband's mumblings. The lead detective, a man named Tony Grasso, has come here expecting a deathbed confession. That's how Dottie explained it when she called the station. Through her, James describes the events leading up to the shooting of Jimmy Carroll back in 1977. But between his difficulty speaking and his wife's reluctance to help him confess, the account Grasso hears stops short of a full admission of guilt. 
When asked later about it, Grasso says, I guess he just wanted to cleanse his soul because he was crying. But it was clear to Grasso that Dottie was not in favor of any kind of confession. He goes on to say that James seemed torn between listening to his wife and wanting to speak. Even without an outright admission that James pulled the trigger, Grasso has heard enough to believe that the man lying in the hospital bed is the same man who fled Hohenwald, Tennessee, 32 years ago. James, through his wife, tells Grasso he's tired of looking over his shoulder. He says he'll come back to Hohenwald of his own free will and face the music. Why Grasso doesn't place him under arrest there and then is anyone's guess. Even though he hasn't said outright that he killed Carol, he's admitted his true identity and that he fled Tennessee rather than stand trial. Perhaps it is the fact that James is a very different man than he was three decades ago. He can't even get out of his bed unaided, much less run from the law for a second time. Or maybe Detective Grasso believes that James will stand before God in judgment before he gets a chance to see the inside of a courtroom. Whatever the reason, Grasso leaves the Brewers in their hospital room. He tells them he'll make a call to the Lewis County Sheriff back in Tennessee, in whose jurisdiction the original case sits. Grasso will act as local liaison while they decide how they want to play it. James watches the detective leave, perhaps feeling lighter already for having unburdened himself. He's surprised he's even lived long enough to come forward. After the damage the stroke has done, surely he doesn't have long left. The inside of this room will surely be the last thing he sees in this world. Today was more about getting his secret off his chest than actually answering for his crime. Except James Brewer doesn't die. In the coming days, he actually starts to recover. His speech becomes less slurred. Some of his motor skills return. He'll never be the same man he was, but in a matter of weeks, he's well enough to leave his hospital bed and return home. For the second time in his life, James has a choice. Does he stay true to his word and return back home in Tennessee to stand trial like he should have 32 years ago? Or does he go back on the road as a fugitive from justice? After he's discharged from the hospital, Dottie brings James back to their modest two-story home on the south side of Shawnee. He might be well enough to be home, but he's in no condition to try and run anywhere. It's over. The day after the Brewers return, neighbors are surprised to see what looks like most of their worldly possessions spread out on the lawn and driveway. It's a peculiar yard sale, with James reduced to watching through the window, too ill to help, and Dottie being uncharacteristically quiet as she sells what she can. Concerned friends and neighbors ask what's going on, but all she'll tell them is that they have to head to Tennessee to deal with a legal matter. Towards the end of the month, they pack up what little they have left and make the return trip they thought would never happen, all the way back to the town of Hohenwald. On March 26th, 2009, James Brewer surrenders to the Lewis County Sheriff's Department. On Monday, the 29th of March, he appears in court represented by Jerry Colley, the same attorney who stood beside him at his bail hearing back in 1977. Last time he had been an upstanding member of the community, 
able to leverage his good name to secure an affordable bail. This time, he's not so lucky. The judge takes no chances, setting his bond at $150,000. That's way more than the Brewers can afford, and he remains in custody. But Lewis County Sheriff Dwayne Kilpatrick is concerned about his frail health, as he still needs feeding through a tube. So James is quickly transferred to the state prison hospital. The news of James Brewer's arrest and arraignment make for headline news worldwide. Those who knew the Brewers under the assumed name of Anderson back in Shawnee are left stunned by the revelation. Their former landlord, Cecil Johnson, says they were a lovely couple and perfect tenants who never missed a payment. He shares that Dottie left him a note when they left, thanking him for being the best landlord they ever had. They were a fine family, Johnson tells reporters. They lived a clean life, and I hope the judge will take that into consideration. Local resident Beverly Bailey, a close friend of Dottie's throughout their time in Shawnee, breaks down in tears when she speaks to the press. She says Dottie had never confided in her about her past, and there was no hint that either she or James had any skeletons in their closet. Meanwhile, back in Hohenwald, the family of Jimmy Carroll have mixed emotions. They're elated that James will finally stand trial for the murder, but he's not the only one they want to hold to account. Brenda Bowie, one of Carroll's sisters, tells anyone who will listen that Dottie is no innocent housewife. Brenda shares newspaper articles from back in the day with Sheriff Kilpatrick that confirmed Dottie was charged at the time and asks him to look into it. In the years that have passed since the original investigation, though, some of the information has been lost. This includes the original charge sheet for Dottie Brewer and several key witness statements. They drove up together at the station and they went there with the intention of killing him, says Brenda. She needs to face charges too. Several witnesses who were in the service station are still alive and authorities still have the gun used in the shooting. Kilpatrick says investigators have a solid case against James, but sounds less confident about any charges against Dottie. After a full review of the case and a fresh round of interviews with witnesses, the trial is set for James. The charge is first-degree murder. It'll take place on the 22nd of March, 2010, in nearby Perry County after a change of venue motion is filed by James's legal team in an attempt to secure a more impartial jury. In the months that follow, James's health starts to decline again, leading prosecutors to worry that he won't last to see his day in court. In January, 2010, police finally decide they have enough to charge Dottie Brewer as an accessory to first-degree murder after the fact. This relates more to her leaving the state rather than alleging she played an active part. As James' trial date approaches, there are questions around his mental health and fitness to stand trial, and a court-ordered evaluation is carried out. While the full details are not made public, the evaluation concludes that James is not well enough to stand trial just yet. So the date is pushed back to November 27th, 2010. But before the trial date arrives, the district attorney, after reading the report alongside James Brewer's declining physical health, makes a decision not to go to trial and lets the case drop. 
The knock-on effect is that without a murder conviction, Dottie cannot stand trial as an accessory. The Brewers fade from the public eye after the charges are dropped. There are no records to confirm whether they stay in town and rebuild bridges with family or head back to Shawnee. There isn't even anything on record to confirm whether Brewer succumbed to his illness or whether he's living out his remaining years in anonymity somewhere. Jimmy Carroll's sister, Brenda, is frustrated and angry. Her brother's killer will never be held to account for what he did. All that is left for her and Carol's twin boys, now grown men, is to grieve all over again for the justice they've been denied. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Naman Diller, an Israeli thief renowned for his adventurous heists and ability to outwit the police. But on his deathbed in 2004, he admitted a secret that linked him to the most infamous, expensive, unsolved watch heist in history. The disappearance of Marie Antoinette's pocket watch. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from ParCast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for ParCast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor, Ben Bishop. Sound design by Matias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Music